again, leaders have said this in different ways, you know, that, that we quote unquote can't humiliate Russia. We don't want to see a collapse that's all um, driven by these kind of interests uh, of preserving stability in Russia, preserving some level of supplies. Um, the analysis of five to six thousand euros that I've seen in, for Germany was based on uh, the current market forward prices for ele electricity in particular um, and LNG. Yeah, Span and those those forward contracts and those prices are, are, are correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that Europe, you know, has this uh, emissions trading scheme for carbon dioxide. And the way that works is every government gets a bunch of credits every year and the number of those credits shrinks every year and then they are traded amongst utilities um, to to sort of on this you know path towards decarbonization and there's there seems to be a very strong political consensus towards that um, but that that does raise the cost of electricity um, and sort of baseload electricity in Europe still overwhelmingly comes from fossil fuels which are then being having to purchase these credits, which are becoming more scarce and thus more expensive every year. Um, you know, the, the other point I would make, since we're kind of talking about energy, is Germany has spent a tremendous amount of money over the last 15 plus years building out renewables, and renewables meaning wind and solar energy, which, um, you know, which are very powerful when they work, but they are not working all the time, right? The, the sun is not shining all the time. The wind is not blowing. And there is no um, cost-effective long-term solution right now. Um, if you look at the statistics, production capacity of energy in Germany has almost doubled over the last 15 years. And yet the price of electricity has also doubled. And emissions have actually gone up, uh, depending on the time period that you look at. And the reason emissions have gone up is that nuclear power plants are being shut down and replaced by coal-fired power plants. Um, you know, I, I do wonder if Europe will remain on the path, the, which I personally view as a crazy path. But um, you know, Greta Thunberg is still welcomed in places. Uh, and, you know, instead of being in a lunatic asylum, uh, she's still being invited to speak at political rallies. Um, so there's strong, I think, still consensus uh, within Europe for that path and that, that does put pressure mic check i think we lost them at a critical point because uh, the analysis is correct uh, europe is artificially shifting its uh, energy policy towards a structural dependency towards the hydrocarbons generated from russia and it fails to acknowledge that nuclear and therefore lower energy cost could have actually saved itself from that dependency and generated better industrial electricity access. But then again, we've said this here many times before. I think Lukas will come back on, right? Can you DM him, Vinan? Yeah, he's, I already messaged him, and he is coming back. And they still can, right? Ah, I'm, I'm back. back. I'm back. Yes, no. Yeah, yeah. When, whenever we lose your sound, you don't I, know what we do, I, and we'll just push you down. And then you just ask to come back up, we'll pull you back up. That's just how we do it. Yeah, I, I heard uh, Axel speak, and I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, for, for various reasons, nuclear is not, ver not very popular in Europe. Um, and even if, if it became popular tomorrow, it takes a very long time 
to add nuclear to the mix. Um, you know, it, it is a think about you know. So, so if you want to dive into energy a little deeper, if you think about the cost of solar and the cost of wind, you know, many people will tell you that the costs of solar have really come down dramatically, and that is true, assuming you know a certain amount of power is being produced every year. The the problem is as you more in power against solar and wind, you get to a point where you have overproduction in the middle of the day. Um, and, and you can look at this yourself. Uh, most state utility grid operators actually have websites which show you production uh, from different sources uh, by, by source and in, in, almost in real time. The Polish grid has this. The website is .so. And Poland is not a, by any means a leader in solar production is producing roughly a quarter of its electricity any given day during the summer from solar. And that means to balance the grid, the operator is shutting down um, coal and other thermal hydrocarbon-powered plants. What happens, unfortunately, is that many of these um, plants, you don't really get to shut them down for a number of hours, right? The, The furnaces are still kind of kept hot, and in many cases, you have to either disconnect solar or you have to disconnect, um, you know, the fossil fuels from the grid. And so if you imagine solar, you know, the cost is X, but if you end up disconnecting it from the grid every single day of the summer for a number of hours, because you're actually overproducing, the cost becomes higher and higher. And as you integrate more and more solar and wind into the grid, those intermittent sources are much more likely to have to be disconnected um, during the day. So you're, you're having that situation. Again, in some other power plants, um, which are carbohydrate you know, and, and fossil fuel powered plants, um, you actually have to continue burning fossil fuels throughout the day, which of course is the worst of all worlds, right? Because you're actually still emitting pollution um, while not generating ele- any electricity for the grid. So, and, and, as, as, and, you, and you see this in almost any country you look at, as you try to increase the amount of solar and wind, um, you get into this kind of dead end where where they're not able to to be used all the time, and then the cost becomes prohibitively high. Um, so that's a that's the policy I think that's going to have to be confronted um, sooner rather than later. Yeah, these are very good points, and uh, the initiatives as to the transmission grid uh, improvement necessary for such intermittent source connect, uh, sources to be connected and the distribution systems in turn to be uh, adjusted to that as well have led to massive infrastructure plan uh, plans across Europe in recent years, none of which have really been fully completed despite the fact that grid operators have to um, also at the same time fight with base load requirements which currently only the French can satisfy completely all the time. Now, we have more energy questions, Lukash, if you don't mind. Uh, we'll go to Mari and Ryan, and then afterwards I would like to go back to what I think is dear to your heart and mine and finances, the lead indicators for actions and markets and what they may say about, um, say, the trajectory of certain parts of the war. Mari. I just wonder, what are the implications for specifically Germany if Nord Stream 1 his function is not renewed because uh, there was a piece of news that came out earlier today announcing that the European Commission is 
setting up a plan in case uh, that doesn't happen? Well, if, as I said, uh, Germany and Europe in general need natural gas for, for the winter. And there's unlimited supply of it. We're in a part of the year where normally you're importing gas, you're building reserves, you're building stocks for, for the winter. Um, and different countries are in a different position. You know, Poland is independent, more or less, from, from Russia at this point. Hungary, Russia, Putin, and Putin has assured him of continued supplies. And then Germany is in this position um, where, again, they, they may have a shortage of gas and rationing this winter if, um, if there's not renewed supplies through Nord Stream 1. Um, and again, if that continues into the spring and you're not building stocks into the next year, uh, then you may have a real um, falling winter. And, and, you know, on this point, you know, especially right now, as, as we're talking about energy policy and global warming, um, you know, there's record heat waves in the UK. And you're probably going to hear reports about how many people are going to be killed by the heat wave. And therefore, we must do things about global warming. Um, if you look at the statistics in almost any country you look at uh, in Europe, more people die in the winter from freezing to death. Uh, uh, heat waves are sensational and keep driving the narrative that we must continue to reduce emissions. Uh, but the winter heating and, and deaths related to cold exposure are a, generally a bigger problem in, in, in most countries. Um, all right. We have a number of hands up. Ryan, Daryl, then Leonard is our order. Well, I think uh, Marty preempted my first question, uh, which would have been uh, what his opinions or thoughts were on uh, President Wanderland's remarks this morning, uh, calling on uh, EU nations to reduce their consumption by 15% uh, progressively to get things situated for the coming winter. Uh, I personally feel like uh, North American capacity to export or increase exports of LNG to Europe might be able to offset this uh, supply deficit if we can make it through the current winter. Uh, I wondered uh, what your thoughts or opinions were on uh, increasing investments in LNG facilities here in the U.S. to deliver uh, cargoes to Europe and supply them with the energy they need to keep their economies going. I mean, it's certainly a terrific idea, but building an LNG facility takes three years. Um, in optimal conditions. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think there's also some concern in the U.S. about U.S. You know, energy prices. I think we are very spoiled in the U.S. And natural gas prices are at seven bucks, uh, roughly seven bucks today. There are domestic U.S. interests that don't want to export that much natural gas if that means higher prices for them. You know, there's very powerful interest groups that use natural gas. Um, for example, most petrochemicals, plastics, fertilizers, utilize natural gas in some capacity. So if I was an owner of a fertilizer manufacturing facility, capacity, right, I would rather the German fertilizer manufacturers all go bankrupt. And so you buy fertilizer from me instead of me exporting natural gas to Europe. And so 
this again is a very cynical view of the world, but um, as natural gas prices rise in the U.S., um, those concerns, you know, will continue to 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 be heard, uh, and there are portfolios, and the reality is the majority of them have not received a federal permit for construction, and you might want to wonder why that is. And again, there are interest groups that would rather have natural gas, you know, at three dollar. I mean, three dollars. Um, per, per uh, you know, million BTUs here, um, as opposed to, to going higher um, towards European levels. So I think that's one consideration I take into account. I'm thinking specifically uh, Simpra or Simpra Energy out of uh, California and Conoco signed a deal to increase LNG production. I think they're adding a whole new liquefaction train on a facility that's already existing, uh, which admittedly will take a couple of years. But I read a news article within the last week that mentioned uh, Pemex down in Mexico had signed a joint venture agreement and already inked a deal to build a new liquid, an entirely new liquefaction facility. And all of the equipment had already been procured. It was just a matter of getting it set up and online. And I, if I'm not mistaken, that was going to be coming on Q3 of 2022. So I'm a little more optimistic about our ability to increase natural gas exports here. Uh, but I totally agree with you on the coming winter and the problems that that present. Uh, certainly, Ryan. Again, uh, U.S. export capacity will increase over time. Uh, but don't forget that the U.S., the, the global economy and energy fuels goes up every single year. The only exception was 2020 due to COVID lockdowns. So, all the talk about transitioning of fossil fuels towards some future, renewable future, um, you know, the data shows that the demand for LNG, for crude oil, for every source of energy is actually is going up every year. Uh, and LNG cargoes heading to Europe are competing against LNG cargoes heading to Asia um, and other okay. parts. Yeah, yeah and other parts of the world. So certainly there will be more capacity. But I'm also pretty certain that a year, two years from now, the global economy is going to be bigger and is going to be demanding more energy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, Daryl, friend of the space and one of our favorite tank veterans here, please ask your question to Lucas. Okay. Uh, I got a couple of things I want to uh, ask about. First of all, when you talk about uh, uh, fossil fuels being left on during the, the uh, periods where um, – renewables are in use, uh, they're not actually running at full capacity. Am I correct? Or uh, I know they have to run at a they have to run, but it would not be at full capacity per se, correct? Uh, that's my understanding, Daryl. And again, it depends on the type of power plant you need to run in some reduced capacity. Natural gas plants can actually be turned down almost entirely from what I understand. Okay. Um, and then uh, the other thing, how much of the uh, processes that use natural gas are not necessarily market friendly as far as I know in a lot of countries in Europe, they're protected. In, and so some of that natural gas that's being used, say, for fertilizers or whatever, uh, how, many, how many of those plants are not necessarily uh, efficient, but but are um are just protected protectionism policies. I can answer that, Daryl. 
I can answer that. The chemical and plastics industry in Europe is one of the most competitive we have. It is completely in the line of fire. There is no protection for them at all. Okay. All right. That's, you know, I know there are certain industries that are, and that was that was the, absolutely. Uh, You're right. So. You're right. Uh, they absolutely are, but they they have they have a completely different field of fire than other industries, which have always been supported or sanctioned and uh, protected. Okay. And then now uh, we get to uh, personal uh, use. I mean, personal. Um, uh, production. Uh, how is that? Is that regulated or non-regulated within, uh, say, Germany, where personal, uh, um, like, um, what I'm gonna say, the the solar cells on on home. How how much of that is in use? Because I mean, these things all have the ability to increase production and uh, lower the uh, offset, you know, produce some kind of offsets where it's not in use all the time as far as the grid. Uh, so, Daryl, I think there's a couple sort of in sub points on that. Uh, just going back to the previous question um, regarding industries that are sort of exposed to the market, uh, fertilizer are very exposed to market forces, uh, but also there are others that have strategic political significance like uh, Volkswagen, right? So I called it nationalization and Axel corrected me that it's probably not going to be nationalization. It's going to be state loan guarantees of some sort. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so what I would say is there are large manufacturing facilities of cars in Germany. They require energy. With energy prices where they are, um, those facilities are not going to be globally competitive. And so the money to plug the hole is going to come from the government in some, some form, be it nationalization or endless subsidies. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, that these, these firms are going to have a very hard time surviving on their own. Um, I, I think, would that be a correct way of framing it, Axel? So I, that, that's how I would, I would frame the debate. With Axel, respect. Still on mute. I don't think you realized it. <laughs> okay. And then uh, how much of the natural gas is being used by fleet um i know that gasoline is expensive and i know lng or uh, yeah lng is used in some fleets i don't think uh, that used it, primarily as a transportation fuel in europe uh i could be wrong daryl but i if i'm not mistaken the primary consumers are industrial for things like making fertilizer and plastics uh, uh germany so industrial as well as home heating the majority of yeah. homes, uh, at least in Poland, you know, have some form of natural gas gas heating. Uh, what about PPG um, using propane? How much of that is in use as an alternate to natural gas? Just consider those two synonymous in this discussion. Okay, fair enough. All right, so that that's you know, I just want to know you know some of the particulars on the uh, outskirts of uh, just the you know base base of uh, industrial use because that was you know we're looking industrial but there are other facets to that and i was just wondering about those things there thanks the big challenge is is you know the costs are going up and someone's gonna pay for it one way or another um to in your thing i was just in poland two months ago um a loaf of bread now costs the equivalent of two and a half u.s dollars 
which is a t- completely insane price for a Polish consumer to pay that much for bread. Um, you know, the, the old um, bread is still a big part of the cuisine in many forms and not just in Poland, as you can imagine. Um, so food prices and energy prices, which are, you know, my grandfather's, uh, he's in retirement, he gets a small pension. Um, you know, he's looking at uh, his home heating bill. He's heating less and he's paying. He, he basically was able to cut his heating uh, quite, quite substantially. And he pays 80% more this year than he paid last year. And he's being told to expect a doubling of prices next year. Um, so for a lot of people, that's going to be, you know, that, that is one of the big shocks. And then the question is, how, how do you pay for it? You can, the government in a way can make the utility companies eat the difference or in some way not let them raise rates in some way. But that just then puts the problem back on the government's shoulders. So there's probably going to be a variety of solutions here. Um, and, and different outcomes. Um, with respect to solar, Daryl, I think you asked earlier, um, every country is a little bit different. Um, there's there's variety of um, feed-in uh, governmentry of changing those uh, agreements retroactively. I can tell you in Poland, um, there was one feed-in tariff established and substantial subsidies for installing solar. A lot of people rushed out to install that. Um, and so the feed-in tariff was, let's say, X, which would be the retail price of electricity, so generating electricity and the price of distributing electricity. And so if you give people a credit for, for supplying the grid with electricity at the retail price of electricity, you're actually shortchanging the utility company, right? Because you're not including the cost of the grid. So they went back and they changed it. The rate which electricity, um, the, the rate at which you're, you're supplying, the, the price at which you're supplying electricity to the grid is now much lower, much closer to the wholesale price of electricity, which is closer to, to half of the retail price, right? So a lot of people are very you know, unhappy about that, right? Because they, they, they installed solar on one assumption and that was exact for coming solar again is unlikely to solve Europe's energy problem anytime soon. Uh, one last thing. What about uh, the wood pellets? I know we ship a lot of wood pellets uh, to Europe. Uh, what's that market looking like uh, right now? I have no insight into the wood pellet market. Um, if I may interject, I, just for um my parents uh, are from Poland. They they heat with pellets. Uh, the price has gone up by roughly seventy percent. That's right. I mean, the the price of all sort of energy sources has gone up. Um, you know, the Polish government, when I was there, is groping with the fact that there may be a shortage of coal for the coal utilities that need it, and they're they're in their heads and. But a few consumers in Poland are still heating their homes with coal, even though it's very environmentally unfriendly. Um, coal is one of the cheapest sources. And if you have a coal burning, um, you know, heating system, you're used to buying coal. Um, and again, the price has dramatically. Price up. International wholesale prices are up like 11x over last 18 months. Now, every regional market is different, but that, that gives you a sense of the trajectory. Uh, so there's stimulus programs now in Poland for consumers 
buying coal as well. Uh, again, it's coming from the, the, the government budget in some way. Uh, but all prices for all electricity are going up. And whether you're generating electricity from wood pellets or you're generating heat, um, either way, that's a concern. I think we have a pipeline question from Vuk, and then we have one from Leonard, and then I would really like to get back to my leading indicators because uh, you're touching upon this all the time, but I think it's an important feature for us. But Vuk, please, pipeline. Um, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, so I may be wrong about this. I've run across this um, analysis that um, this is going to be long to explain. Um, say most of Russians... Uh, oil fields or gas fields, roughly the same thing, really, uh, are in permafrost areas. And the tricky thing is that you need to have a certain pressure in the pipes to keep the fields flowing. And the idea is, if you cannot, if there's not enough demand uh, down the line, uh, you have to shut it down and you face a situation where you cannot simply turn the gas back on, so to speak. And my question would be, is this actually a real thing? And um, say we'll, we'll be facing a decrease in global uh, gas uh, production in the near years. So uh, the current situation would be a situation we'll be confronting in the, say, next two, three, five, whatever years. And uh, the second is, how would that impact the uh, situation in general? Thank you. Well, Vuk, thank you for the question. As I am not an expert in operating um, natural gas plants in the Russian permafrost, I'm going to politely pass this question on to someone who may be able to answer it uh, better. But I, I really don't have... Well, we have... Uh, I think we have someone with Ryan who can actually talk about pipelines from an oil perspective, but that's a different thing. Um, I think we have a question. Uh, Vuk, if we can put a pin into this and Ryan and I come back to that question in uh, a little while. But stay with us. Leonard, you had a question for uh, Lucas. Uh, yes, I did. And uh, thank you, Axel. And thank you also, Tomas, for... Uh, sharing with us the, the depth of your expertise here. Um, now, I, I just have a, a couple of quick questions for you. And firstly, um, the um, just so you know, I'm uh, calling out of uh, Western Canada. I'm uh, just a country lawyer based in Alberta. But uh, uh, we have a, a deputy premier here who coincidentally, uh, a former deputy premier, who uh, which is deputy prime minister, of course, who has precisely the same name as yourself so i'm just wondering if you have any relatives in this neck of the woods uh thank you for that uh, comic relief question leonard um you know my last name i'm sorry are you referring to my first name or my last name? my last name is actually oh i'm sorry his name his name is thomas lukash which i saw as your name oh okay uh well wukash is is the polish version for lucas and it's one of the most common names uh, in Poland. I was in a class, in my high school class in Poland. We had 32 kids, and five of them were named Lucas, okay? Uh, my last name is incredibly rare, um, but there are a couple Canadians with that last name. And I believe there's a uh, Tomiki Avenue somewhere. You, you, you can look at this up. There's some 
Tomiki construction company or kind of uh, home renovation. There's there's a couple in the U.S. Okay. Rare last name. Okay, excellent. Uh, yeah, you were just breaking up a touch there at the end. But uh, uh, the question is this. Now, um, the, uh, the the promise uh, that I have uh, dealt with in, the world, in this part of the he's world, he's also very familiar and very active in the energy sector. Uh, obviously, you're probably aware of the degree to which uh, energy matters, oil, gas, and all of the refining aspects are critical issues in the in the Alberta economy. But uh, specifically, now, uh, I just uh, just have a question for you in terms of how you assemble the data that that you base your conclusions on, because uh, in his case. And he was uh, born and raised in Poland as well, and then educated in Canada. But he uh, seems to have a much more bullish outlook in terms of the Ukraine's prospects in this uh, this entire escapade. And he seems to be, he's I, you might even say hyperactive in the efforts and the pro-Ukraine activities in this, this part of the world. And specifically with reference to your your assessments on energy it just uh, listening to him and and listening to you and of course i'm not an energy expert i'm just a country lawyer here but uh it it seems that he, he's far less pessimistic in terms of his projections and and uh, uh in terms of, and how this will impact the future and the unfolding of the ukraine uh, situation so i'm just wondering how much of your calculations which seem to be based heavily on a uh, sort of a spreadsheet economic analysis, which is fine and which everybody understands the importance of that. But also you, you, it, I would just get a sense that you, you seem to be reflecting a, a, a goodly portion of the German, the current presiding uh, uh, sentiment of the German administration and their, their chancery. Um, I'm just wondering how you balance your conclusions that this uh, sort of almost foreboding, I might say, with respect to how Russia may uh, may somehow find its objectives in this thing. How you, you balance that off with the the kind of uh, very um, visceral attitude that seems to be coming out of Great Britain to start with, and of course Canada, Australia, and the United States now, um, sometimes referred to as the Anglosphere, but there seems to be a very deeply rooted sentiment here that is marshalling directly against all of Putin's objectives. And we understand his game plan is very short term. It's obviously very, he's playing a, he's playing a short game here. Um, and he was hoping to have Germany over the barrel, which clearly he does. And based upon your assessments with regard to uh, Volkswagen and uh, all the major players uh, uh, seems to do so. But there's a longer game here as well. And that's has been addressed throughout the Anglosphere over the last hundred years, you might say almost. And it just seems to me that uh, you, I don't see much reflection in your analysis of the the uh, beyond the the economics, just to the sheer uh, political, if you will, and or ide- ideological commitment and humanitarian commitments out of the Anglosphere that uh, are not really amenable to some of the, the the less committed aspects and some of the wobbling we've seen coming out of Germany. 
And just I'll just conclude by saying that you're probably aware of the gas reserves alone in Alberta would be enough to light up Europe, Europe probably for 100 years. Uh, and that is, there's already efforts underway with respect to uh, the Energy, Energy East uh, project and construction of LNG terminals on the east coast of Canada. Um, and we've had mothballed, unfortunately, there were three major LNG projects mothballed on the west coast of Canada, the Pacific coast. And I'm sure you're aware in Austin that uh, there's uh, there's American plans right now in Houston to regenerate uh, and revive LNG. So I'm just wondering how you draw the line between sort of the spreadsheet economic analysis and the, I would say, the more overriding fundamental uh, uh, political, uh, cultural, and if not uh, outright millennial uh, uh, considerations for the future of the planet. And I mean, by that, I mean the political future. And I, by that, I mean the these strong movement against tyranny in uh, in any of our spheres. And I just wonder how you balance that or if you do balance that in your uh, your spreadsheet equations. So thank you for that, sir. Uh, thank you for for all your questions, Leonard. Um, to address Florida, um, yes, I think there's enormous energy resources there, uh, but there has to be a political will to develop them and there has to be political certainty for companies to want to invest to develop those resources because, as you, you mentioned, they're extremely long-lived assets. So if I'm a company, I'm going to invest, I have to have some degree of certainty that building out the processing facilities, the pipelines, um, those will be around for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, the government of Canada is not particularly friendly right now to fossil fuels, and in general, Western governments are acting as if they are trying to get off fossil fuels as soon as possible. So if I'm an executive at a oil and gas company, I would simply be shoveling back cash to shareholders for dividends and buybacks and not investing because I think it's insane to invest in new capacity in the current environment. So that's that's number one. Um, and I, I would point you to oil metal um, at the Formula One uh, race in Canada at the Grand Prix. I think uh, those are very well reflective of well, well-to-do Germans who have the money uh, to, to indulge in, in sort of environmental uh, policies. So that, that's the attitude I think a lot of people still have about Canadian oil sands. Um, with respect to the military situation in Ukraine, I am not a military expert by no means. I certainly don't. I hope I didn't present myself as a military expert. I will simply... I'm looking at this from the perspective of an outsider. And initially, some people thought that Russia would take Kiev in three or four days. Clearly, that's not happened. Um, and, and I think that, that was too optimistic. And now, from again, not getting into the weeds of one missile or adversary, I hear now saying that in the next six to 12 months, uh, Ukraine will, will effectively kick Russia out of all Ukrainian territory, um, including uh, Crimea. And I, I'm, I'm questioning if that will really happen. Um, so that's, that's my only point. And that's as deep as my analysis goes, I don't get into one missile system versus, versus another. Uh, thank in, you for that, uh, sir. The U.S. 
to doing a lot in terms of, you know, the U.S. committing to help um, the situation. The U.S. Is, is helping, helping, I think, in a tentative way. Right. Um, I believe there are the numbers I've seen are between three to three and a half million um, Ukrainian refugees in Poland. The U.S. is not committing to take massive amounts of refugees, you know, in the millions. We're doing several tens of thousands, a hundred thousand. Those are the numbers that I'm hearing. And there are there are some that are, you know, arriving in Texas. There are groups I'm a member of, um, but we're not talking about millions. Um, Again, being quite cold and calculating as an investor, none of this should be uh, construed as pessimism. The U.S. is a relative winner in this horrible world, unfortunately. The worse the better the U.S. ever, U.S., the political situation is not great. The debt is not great. There's all sorts of issues. But the U.S. looks a hell of a lot better than, than parts of Europe. And Europe, by the way, I think will muddle through this in some way, or, or fashion. Europe has survived horrific events and it'll get through this as well. But this just makes the U.S. look even better. Um, you know, and I, I would lastly say that the U.S. very often doesn't have the high ground um, in terms of the moral position. Um, you know, I just watched a documentary about uh, Jewish refugees that went to Shanghai during World War II. And one of the reasons they ended up going to Shanghai is because the U.S. was not willing to take them. Um, and, and so the U.S. certainly was not fully committed to, to helping Europe uh, during World War II. I mean, they were at some point, but it was always reactive. And I think that's likely to be um, the same case uh, here. I, I hope I answered all your questions, Leonard. Well, you certainly hit uh, hit all of them, and uh, I, I thank you for that. And you've raised a, a considerable amount of food for thought here. So uh, I think we'll, we'll all be taking away many, many hours of follow-up thinking as to what you've raised here. So thank you. Uh, Lucas, while, while I have you for a little longer, can I ask a little bit about your views on U.S. energy production, which I think... Um, absolutely plays into this as well as both the inflation discussions going on because a lot of it's energy driven uh, flowing through the system and uh, you know the ability for the U.S. to replace uh, the currently tanking Russian production supply. Uh, certainly, uh, although I, I would say you know I, I I don't have reliable numbers on the Russian production supply, uh, but of those for those of you who are not familiar, uh, there is something called the Latvian blend. Of crude oil, uh, which you know you may be surprised at the name since Latvia doesn't produce any crude oil, and what the Latvian blend is is simply Russian crude blended with other crude Latvian blend. One way is making its way onto global markets, um, and, and I, I think markets are fungible and tradable. And so, if one country doesn't want Russian crude, some other country will take it, and I think that's what you're seeing. And you know the obvious suspects are China and India. Um, so I'm not sure that there's going to be that dramatic of a decrease in the near term. There may be some production declines over the longer term as sanctions make it more difficult to produce and raise output or maintain output from declining oil fields uh, without, you know, external technology. Yeah, um, I would, but that's I a longer term question. 
Yeah, I can kick this to Madi. We've been running numbers together basically since the uh, since we started talking after this current war broke out. Um, they were predicted to be around three to five percent declines. Ryan also has these numbers before the war broke up. Broke out. Now they're looking at at least ten percent declines. Those numbers might be as high as seventeen to twenty-two percent declines in production year over year. Very hard to get accurate information out of Russia. Absolutely has to do with pretty much all of their foreign partners pulling out because that's all of their um, both skilled industrial workers and their uh, skilled engineers pulling out because even the people that are local from Russia, from Russian universities, which are good at math and things, tend to go get jobs at these places where they pay better. So uh, we're looking at good numbers. Madi, what's what's our current estimate? Or Ryan, you guys have that. What's our current estimate on Russian production declines? Their original projection was three or five percent, and it turned out to be 10. And that's when they kind of uh, clammed up. There have been some internal documents that made it into the news where uh, somebody in the Russian economy chain of command was forecasting uh, about a 17% decline in production by year end. And I was spitballing that if they're forecasting 17, it'll probably be 25, but it's going to get ugly. Mari, you look at some Russian local regional papers. What are you thinking? Yeah, 17% is probably a good conservative estimates and conservative being on the side of positive positivity for the Russians. It's probably going to be a lot more. But this number combines both the civilian and military sector. We are currently seeing that the Russian economy is getting heavily militarized. Um, so their civilian sector is probably going to be pretty much dead in many in many of the industries by the end of this year. Uh, so we also, uh, fantasy from America, we also looked at energy consumption uh, in the energy grid within Russia. And it kind of supports this uh, narrative where we've seen those regions that don't have any military uh, facilities are actually experiencing a significant decrease in their energy consumption, whereas those regions that do contain factories uh, from the military-industrial complex, uh, they have a somewhat of a moderate increase in energy consumption. So that's what we're thinking, 17-ish percent or worse for Russian production declines by year Here's another factor to consider in all of that. Uh, Russia isn't accustomed to storing their commodities they produce, so they don't have massive uh, ability to store either produced crude like we have in the U.S. with the salt domes and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, nor do they have the ability to store large volumes of gas. If they're not delivering this gas into Europe and they don't have pipeline infrastructure or liquefaction facilities, to put that on a boat and send it somewhere else, they're gonna have to flare that gas, so they're gonna have to shut in the wells. And when you shut in the wells, you run the risk of damaging the well bore. And when you bring it back online, it may or may not do what it did when you shut it in. Um, they can flare gas, but where can they park the crude? If I may, that's kind of my question because that's exactly what happened in the early 90s, if I recall. Um, that's the problem they faced. and. They basically froze their production, which didn't come online until like, I guess, 20 years later, which was with hefty support from the Western uh, knowledge by... Um, it didn't just, come online until Halliburton brought them back online. Basically, yeah. And so if if that's not on the table, then 
we're talking about a decrease that's not just a dip, that's permanent. Yeah, I think that that kind of scenario brings us to the worse than 17% um, uh, more problematic scenarios for Russian production. Um, I won't exactly cry for the results for their economy, but it does matter for the global economy that everyone has energy. Hence why I asked Lucas where he's viewing on uh, domestic and North American energy and energy investment production opportunities in general, because that's the kind of thing I know he is looking at. Yeah. So, I mean, I think anyone can look at this data, which is U.S. crude production is rising, um, perhaps not as quickly as we'd like it to be rising, but it's rising. Um, and this is public data, um, you know, crude output in the Permian Basin um, is at all record, at all production is, but it is increasing. Um, and there are shortages of everything still. Um, though I'm sure over time, those shortages, so shortages of everything being pipe, drilling equipment, uh, you know, roughnecks, workers, etc. cetera. Uh, but those, those are things that can be alleviated uh, over time. Um, having said that, demand, global demand is, is also going to rise probably this year as well, um, as it has every year, um, except again, 2020. So um, we need more crude. We need it now. Um, and I, I think we need, um, you know, a political consensus that have to or for Lucas in, in the next five years. Lucas, we broke you broke up that we need a political consensus and then we couldn't hear you, sir. Sorry, I was going to say we need a political consensus that we need more investment um, because the political climate, not just in the U.S., is making that investment uh, very difficult. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely say regularly on this space that I am in favor of Every kind of energy, renewable, nuclear, drilling, wells, whatever, bring bring it all online. I'm okay with pretty much all energy that doesn't support genocide. That's my only caveat. So uh, I think at least we're agreed. We have a couple more hands up. David, welcome back up to the space. Then Madi again. Sorry, I was trying to apologize. I was trying to uh, find my mic. Um, and so if it helps, I could probably uh, give you um, some insights to what it's like on the ground in the UK um, uh, with regards to some of this stuff. So it just give you a little bit of information. So um, uh, the buy-in tariff, uh, uh, if uh, someone's solar um, in the UK is nine pence, as it stands at the moment, uh, that's per kilowatt hour, as it stands, um, um, if you're buying in electricity, it's 32 pence per kilowatt hour. I think, what's that, 43 cents or something like that. There's a thought that the price per kilowatt hour of electricity uh, might go to 45 pence um, uh, later in the year per kilowatt hour, right? Uh, uh, so as it stands within the UK, if anyone who's, um, who's selling back to the grid that's just madness, um, and your best option uh, would be to get yourself a battery and put your solar onto a battery and just store it, um, and, and you would be paying back pretty quickly. Um, where wood is concerned, um, so wood pellets aren't a big thing over here, but wood is. In the UK, uh, we currently have a, um, an environmental tragedy, which is ash dieback, uh, where they think that 85% or 80% of ash trees are just going to die. It's a bit like Dutch elm disease, um, and that's in the next five to ten years. 
So there's going to be um, a lot of um, hardwood available. Obviously, the tragedy is is that we're going to we're going to lose an awful lot of forests. Um, as it stands, it, I've been looking at it. It makes sense to remove uh, your gas um, and and just change what you've got and put in um, a wood burner. There's some there's some costs there as well because uh, the people who put in wood burners are convinced the uh, the government that this has to be coded and the people who can put them in um, now charge a premium so they might charge you about 1500 pounds to put something in that would take them about two hours um, because they've managed to develop themselves a a, a, a bit of a monopoly um, I turned off gas uh, the uh, uh, as a result uh, in this uh, in my house as a result of um, to be, um, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, as a, as a statement against uh, for uh, Ukraine. Don't ask me about the price of gas, but I think it's going to be per therm. It's going to be pretty dreadful. Uh, so um, and this winter, uh, there were some cases of and this is something I used to see as a kid, uh, right, where um, you used to see people on uh, old uh, uh, on around the coal mines who would be looking on the on the pits trying to find um, coal and there were some cases this year of people going to old uh, coal mountains trying to find coal and take it uh, technically you're not supposed to be using it because we've got the clean air act uh, but uh, where keeping your houses warm in this country it's going to be an absolute nightmare if you have an old house and in the UK, our houses leak like nobody's business. It's going to be grim, grim times. Uh, thank you for that, David. You know, I, I actually uh, grew up in Cheshire in a little town called Warrington. So, uh, Well, yes, yes, good old Warrington. So you, you'll have noticed it. So I uh, look, right, we've uh, we forget how things have changed. As a kid, I used to wake up uh, in the winter every winter there would be ice on the inside of the window, right? So, uh, uh, the uh, but times have changed, and our houses really, really do leak. But the point where you've got someone who's who's going over an old, uh, old, uh, you know, old slag heap, as it's called, trying to find usable coal, um, then there's a bit of a problem, right? Correct, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd, I'd address one other matter, kind of related to what you were mentioning. Um, uh, homes from furnaces that are fight, you know, that are coal uh, powered, is still um, an ongoing issue. And as as you mentioned, those are extremely polluting. So, uh, if you go to Krakow in the winter, you will notice substantial smog and air pollution. Um, you can also see there are these maps, particular Poland and in particular southern Poland, um, you know, is is often one of the most polluted parts. Um, of of europe um and so that's you know unfortunately a very 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 big concern um you know and and, I, and in that context I, I really see the german decisions to to move away from nuclear energy um you know so so difficult to to yeah for, for anyone who's who sees it must think it's madness right correct and, and you know I, I understand there are risks to to nuclear uh, and i do appreciate the point uh, but there are substantial risks and, and deaths due to, um, you know, air, air pollution. 
um, you know, I, I am concerned about the climate. Um, I would simply say that um, I'm concerned about the environment. I, I do say some people have accused me of denying climate change, and, and that's not true. I, I'm simply much more concerned about environmental air pollution um, rather than, than rising temperature, probably. At, at... Absolutely right. I couldn't agree more, Lukash, because uh, the key thing, the key to solving this is next-gen nuclear power and smaller-sized uh, nuclear power plants widely distributed. That's exactly the point. And you know, the problem will be the time to get them developed. No, no, no. It's actually not. Uh, that's not true anymore. We have already, we have already at least three different, uh, say, small-scale nuclear power uh, systems which have already left the testing stage. This is significantly further advanced than the general public believes, because currently both media and governments are not pushing it. In the 1970s, Germany was amongst the top two nations worldwide developing nuclear power plants, and then the KGB intervened. But let's uh, leave it aside and let's go to Mali. All right, we are we are uh, running, Lucas. How much longer do I have you? Do we have you for here? Uh, for another 22 minutes. All right. Well, let's go to Mahdi and then we'll take another question and we'll let you, uh, wrap it up as you wish. That's a really quick question because I know Axel wants to discuss leading indicators. So back in March, Halliburton, Schlumberger, uh, Baker Hughes suspended their operations in Russia. So what are the implications for the Russians? Uh, will they be able to service their rigs and pipelines themselves? And if not... Uh, do you expect that it's going to disrupt any any supplies going from Russia into Europe because of that? I mean, I, I think certainly in the short term it will, and people are are not hopeless. So they're they're going to be able to replace some Western expertise with their own people. And I think as as uh, finance mentioned, you know, a lot of the highly trained Russian engineers that were working for Halliburton may now simply work for a Russian. Um, company of some sort. So I think over, I, I'm so pessimistic on Russia. Two things, Lu- Lucas. Technical Lucas, abilities. I yeah. think that we can. Yeah, Lu- Lucas, may... we, we're losing, we're losing you one and two. You, you misunderstood me. I don't think they're going to go work for a Russian company because Russian companies do things like pay engineers four hundred dollars a week, and foreign companies pay them, you know, what you'd expect an electrical or geothermal or. You know any kind of major. I, I certainly get that, but now now there, there's no no more from the so, you know eight hundred dollars a month. Um, let's not forget Russia. You know built uh, 